Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto, and we're continuing on in the series Paul and His Communities. Today we turn to Paul's letter to the Romans. And in particular, we'll be trying to get a sense of what was the situation at Rome that led Paul to write this letter. In particular, we'll have to consider what was the makeup of Christian communities at Rome, what was their ethnic status. And we'll see that this is an important key to understanding the entire situation and the concerns that Paul has about what's going on at Rome. Namely, groups of followers of Jesus at Rome consisted of both Judeans, Jews, and Gentiles, in particular Greeks. Paul specifically identifies them as Greek-speaking immigrants, most likely settled in Rome. And it's this issue of who the followers of Jesus are in terms of ethnic status that is at the heart of the problem that Paul identifies and that we'll be getting into today. He sees a problem with tensions between Judeans and non-Judeans between Judeans and Greeks. And in this case, the situation is quite different than the tensions between Judeans and Gentiles you may have been familiar with from the discussion of Galatians. At Rome, it's Greeks who do not follow the Jewish Torah, who do not follow the food laws, looking down upon and judging Judeans who do follow the Torah. And Paul sees this as a problem. He sees the main problem not of Judeans following the Jewish law, not at all. He sees the main problem of Greeks looking down upon Judeans for following the Jewish law. And this throws further light on the question of how Paul views Judeans and how Paul views the Jewish Torah. It depends very much on what the situation is. And today we'll get into that main ethnic division and main ethnic uh, tensions that are taking place among groups of followers of Jesus at Rome. We'll also need to deal with a couple of the other elements in the purposes of Paul writing his letter. It's not only to address this particular situation, although that's primary. There are other purposes to Paul's writing of this letter that I'll get into further in the discussion. His preparations for coming west, hopefully as far as Spain, and his worry about whether or not the collection that he has been making, the collection of money he has been gathering from Greeks and Romans and the Gentile congregations he has founded, whether or not this money will be accepted by the Jerusalem church as a gift to the poor in Jerusalem. And this is at the heart of the question of the legitimacy of Paul's mission in the eyes of some other leaders of the Jesus movement in the first century. So I hope you enjoy this episode, which is the first of two that deal with Paul's letter to the Romans. Today we move on to Paul's letter to the Romans. And one thing about his letter to the Romans that distinguishes it from all the letters we've looked at, including 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, including Philippians, is that Paul is writing to a community he did not found. He did not actually have a role in drawing them over to worshiping the Judean God. Paul obviously has some relations with them and knows about what's going on at Rome. We'll soon see that very clearly. That there's a real situation that Paul knows about. But in terms of how much he knows about different places he's been, 
this would be the place where he knows a little bit less. Now, despite this fact that he did not found this community, he does seem to have good information, good sources about what's going on within the community there, and we'll get into that soon. My main point today has to do with that information he has. And that is that the main problem that Paul sees going on at Rome that he's heard about through some sort of network is, again, ethnic divisions. Divisions between Greek and Judean. But another aspect of the main point I want to make is the ways in which this problem of ethnic divisions both relates to and contrasts to the situation at Galatia. Remember when he wrote to the Christians at Galatia? Clearly there, there were ethnic issues going on. The main ethnic issue was Judeans, who were followers of Jesus, passing through, discovering Gentiles that aren't circumcised who believe they belong to a Judean movement, advocating circumcision so that the Gentiles can become symbolically God's people in a full way. Paul reacting to this idea of you need to be Judean fully before you can belong to the Jesus movement. Paul reacts negatively to that and says, Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. Gentiles do not need to be circumcised in order to be fully recognized as belonging to this Judean movement. There's a sense in which that situation at Galatia, you can see, involves claims of superiority. In Paul's view, it's claims of superiority. And that is Judean claims of superiority over Gentiles, and that Gentiles, in order to be accepted in a Judean movement, need to be circumcised. They're inferior. Gentiles are inferior and need to come up to a status that is approaching being a Judean in the full sense. So there's an attitude of Judeans, you could say, in Paul's view, looking down upon Greeks, looking down upon Gentiles. And so the ethnic tension, you could say, that is there is a dynamic of Judeans being superior to Greeks. The contrast that then comes out, despite the fact that in both places Paul is dealing with the relationship between Judeans and Greeks, the contrast between this situation at Galatia that I've been briefly reminding you of, where Judeans are feeling superior to Greeks, so to speak, and the situation at Rome, is that in Rome, he's dealing with Greeks thinking they're superior to Judeans. And so the Judeans at Rome, who are followers of Jesus, are being looked down upon in some ways by the Greeks. And that's what we'll get into fully today and into Paul's response, which is to try and create a situation where Judeans and Greeks are melded together into a community without distinction, which is an emphasis of Paul's overall mission in general. Traditionally, scholars used to look at Romans as Paul's statement of his theology, And they did not think of it as a situation-specific document. They did not necessarily say, okay, what's going on at Rome that led Paul to write this? What is he addressing here that's going on at Rome? Scholars used to talk as though it was just Paul sitting down and making his tractate, so to speak, statement of his theology. This view now is widely rejected. Instead, the view that is now dominant, and rightly so, and you'll see why when we get into the material, is that Romans is a response to a very concrete situation. Paul knows something about what's going on in Rome. He's explaining what he thinks in relation to a specific situation, just like he was with the other letters. Let's get into Rome then, first of all. The city of Rome, as you know, is the capital of the Roman Empire. It's the largest city in the whole Roman Empire. And it's also one of the most metropolitan cities in the whole Roman Empire. 
By that I mean there's a huge mixture of population there. In Rome, we're not dealing with the majority of the population speaking Latin and the majority of the population engaging in solely Roman practices versus Greek practices. No. We're dealing with a very cosmopolitan population, a mixture of immigrants, a very large population of immigrants, especially immigrants that are Greek-speaking, are settled in Rome. And some of those Greek-speaking immigrants are Judeans. And we have inscriptions in Greek involving Judeans in Rome. So let's get into these Judeans in Rome because they're the clue to understanding where the followers of Jesus came from in the first place in Rome. Things that happened to the Judeans in Rome may be key to understanding the whole situation that Paul addresses here. So let me say more about the status of Judeans in terms of their social status. Many of the immigrant groups, even beyond the Judeans, who are settled in Rome are either slaves or ex-slaves. A good number of them may well have been prisoners of war, especially from the time when Pompey went into Jerusalem back in the 60s BCE. In other words, Rome was extending its control of that area, and prisoners of war were taken away. There's other incidents that could have happened since the 60s BCE that also would have contributed to the populations of Judeans at at Rome. Potentially some could voluntarily go from Judea to Rome in order to engage in business or whatever your trade may be. Let's talk about the Judeans of Rome now as part of this understanding the situation. We know about synagogues at Rome. We have quite a few inscriptions by Judeans, usually grave inscriptions, in which they are honoring the deceased, but they happen to mention which synagogue either the deceased or the people who are honoring the deceased, or probably both, belong to. And so we have quite a few inscriptions that refer to different synagogues in the first three centuries CE. The difficulty with these inscriptions is we're not sure of exactly when each of them dates from. However, some of the names give it away that they have been synagogues that most likely existed from the first century. For example, a synagogue called the Synagogue of the Augustesians, named after Augustus. This group of Judeans worshiping the Judean God have a synagogue, a gathering, and they've named themselves in honor of the Emperor Augustus, which tells you most likely that group dates from the first century and continues on into the second and third century. We have another group called the Agrippesians, a synagogue of the Agrippesians, another Judean group who felt that the uh, Agrippa, who was another important leader in Rome, was so good to them that they felt that it would be good to honor him by naming their synagogue after him. And we have between 10 and 15 synagogues attested. Some with the name given, some not with the name given, which makes it hard to know whether or not you're dealing with the same synagogue again. So we have a little bit more rich uh, material there to know that there's Judeans settled there, where they're settled to some degree based on where these monuments are found. They're settled mainly in areas that are known for immigrant settlements. And we know a little bit about the structure of even these synagogues and the leadership structure of them, the titles that they give to their leaders and that sort of thing from these inscriptions. It seems that the earliest Jesus groups emerged out of these Judean populations. We don't have any clear evidence of who it was that went to Rome with this idea that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. We do have one example of Judeans who were converted before ever they had contact with Paul. 
and they are named Prisca and Aquila, a woman and a man, that are mentioned in Acts, that are also mentioned in Paul's letters. It becomes clear in Acts, at least, if we can trust it on filling in more information. And in Acts, it clearly states in Acts chapter 18, and in fact, this would be a good time to look at that, because it's going to relate to something else I'm going to bring up next. Look at Acts chapter 18, where it indicates to us that they're Judeans, Prisca and Aquila. So they're among Judeans from Rome, and that they were already followers of Jesus before ever Paul met them. But Paul eventually met them in Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he found a Judean named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Judeans to leave Rome. Here we have a reference to two Judeans that follow Jesus as the Messiah. So this is a Judean who had migrated to Pontus, then migrated to Rome, got expelled from Rome, and this we got to explore a little bit further what this expulsion from Rome is, and now is in Corinth and meets up with Paul. The way Acts portrays it is that they have the same occupation as Paul as well, tent makers. Probably a husband and wife. This reference in Acts chapter 18 verse 2 to the uh, Judeans being expelled from Rome is a complicated historical issue because we have little snippet information from a variety of sources that seem to be pointing to a similar episode. But none of them give us enough information to confirm that it's the same episode and none of them clarify enough for us to really know his solidly historically what happened. But let me give you the gist. There's a scholar named Wolfgang Wiefel who uh, built a whole theory about Romans around this idea of the expulsion of Judeans, and it may well be a good explanation. Let me give you a little background to the idea of Judeans being expelled from Rome before, like, why would anyone be expelled from Rome? Well, let me give you a little background. There's a long history of Roman authorities dealing with foreign populations in the city of Rome when there are riots, when there are social disturbances involving a certain immigrant group. Sometimes the tactic of the Roman authorities is just kick them all out. And so we have confirmation, for example, of Judeans being expelled or at least some Judeans being put out of Rome on several occasions. In the 130s BCE, there's an episode in some historians that seems to indicate something along this line. Certain Judeans, as immigrants, being put out of Rome. In 19 CE, we have an episode involving the emperor deciding, based on some problems that are going on, that some Judeans need to be expelled from Rome. But it's not only Judeans. It's any immigrant group, any foreign group, that causes trouble or is perceived to cause trouble. It doesn't matter whether you really are causing trouble. So this episode that we're dealing with is not entirely hard to understand. It's another case where certain immigrant groups are perceived by the Roman authorities to be involved in troubles, and the result is some of the Judeans, or maybe all, the way that Acts says it is all the Judeans, are expelled from Rome. One of the passages that backs up this final incident of expulsion that relates to the time of Paul. Suetonius is a historian writing in the early 2nd century, so after 100 CE, and he's doing a history of the different reigns of different emperors. In the process of telling about the reign of Claudius, he has this little snippet. Since the Judeans constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius expelled them from Rome. 
That seems to be referring to the same thing Acts is referring to. The difficulty is we don't know anything more than that. Obviously, Crestus could be just Suetonius having information about Christ being involved, having very vague information, and then just talking as though it was a person leading, leading the riots. Another theory that's entirely different is that Crestus is, in fact, a, an assistant to Claudius who instigated the need to expel Judeans from Rome. We just don't know. But what's clear is something happened in the reign of Claudius involving at least some Judeans in social disturbances, in riots, that ended up in some Judeans being expelled from Rome. Dio Cassius is another historian. Doesn't refer to an expulsion. What he does refer to is that Claudius the emperor made restrictions on Judeans' gatherings. And then historians now in the modern world are trying to figure out, okay, how does the little incidental reference to Judeans having restrictions on when they can meet or how they can meet relate to Suetonius' very obscure reference to riots? And how does that relate to Acts? Well, obviously, they all somehow relate to Claudius' dealings with Judeans, and they all point to the fact that some Judeans at some point were expelled from Rome. Now, obviously, the mention of Crestus does link up then with the question of whether Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla give the link to Christianity, don't they? Because they're Judeans who are expelled from Rome. If there was an involvement of Christians and if some debate about following Christ or something was involved in the riots among Judeans, then potentially Aquila and Priscilla are further confirmations of that Christ connection. However, it's possible that there isn't a Christ connection. Either way... This is important for understanding Paul's letter to the Romans. Because in the decades just before Paul writes, remember Paul writes Romans between probably 55 and 60 CE. And the incident in Suetonius probably dates to 47 to 50 CE. So a decade or less before Paul wrote to the followers of Jesus at Rome, Judeans had been expelled from Rome potentially leaving Greeks who follow Jesus in Rome. The Emperor Nero seems to have changed policy and allowed the return of Judeans who had been expelled from Rome, precisely in the time period where we're dealing with Paul's letter. Now let's look at the situation among the Jesus followers specifically. Let's ask the question we always ask, and what can we know about the status and some of this has been answered indirectly, about the status of the Jesus followers at this locale. The good thing is, in the final chapter of Romans, remember that Paul is writing a real letter here. Let's remind ourselves of what a real Greek letter involves. It involves you have this introduction where you say who you are and who you're writing to. You then have your thanksgiving prayer and the prayer to the gods on behalf of the people you're writing to and sort of reminding them of your relationship with the people you're writing to. And that's typical in every one of Paul's letters and every Greek letter. Then you have the body of your letter that can be different no matter who you are. Then you have the conclusion area that usually involves saying hi to Joe and Jane. And that's typical of a Greek letter. And so in the say hi to Joe and Jane for me section of Romans, we have a list of a good number of names. 26 people referred to in Romans chapter 16. Now I should give you a little bit of a warning. And that is, some scholars argue that Romans chapter 16 is not originally part of the letter to Romans. Rather than explain to you all that, let's just go straight into assuming the theory that it is originally part of Romans. And so that we are dealing with people at Rome and not people at Ephesus, which is the other theory 
that this is a fragment relating to Ephesus somehow. Uh, let's take a look at some of the names that are here because they indicate something about who belongs to the Jesus groups. First of all, it's this reference in verse 3 to Prisca and Aquila. Prisca is a short form of Priscilla, the figure that was mentioned in Acts 18. Say hi to Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I, but also the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. Greet also the church in their house. Here we have a very important piece of information beyond the issue of who belongs and on to the issue of where they meet and how things work. And I've already argued this on other letters. And that is that the household was often the context in which a group of Jesus followers would meet. Here we have it explicitly spelled out to you. The church in their house, the assembly in their house is a phrase you'll encounter in some other Paul's letters as well. In fact, in Philemon, you've got it in the opening of Philemon, which tells you the household basis of the gatherings of Jesus followers. But let's go on to some more of these people here. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen. What does he mean by kinsmen? Judeans. We're getting a glimpse not only of the fact that of what we knew, there are Judeans among the followers of Jesus at Rome, yes. We, but here we have explicitly named Judeans. It's not often that we have that in Paul's letters. And there's others that are mentioned as fellow Judeans as well. Herodion. There's another one further down. Something while we're on this. So we have clear evidence of Judeans and have specific names of Judeans who belong to the Jesus followers here, including Priscilla and Aquila. Judeans who formerly lived in Asia Minor, and now they're settled in Rome. So just because you're fellow Judeans doesn't mean you're from Judea literally. It could be that you've lived your entire life somewhere else, but you still have that ethnic identity of being Judean, no matter where you live. So we have Judeans here. But on top of that, that are belonging to the group of Jesus followers here. Both men and women being mentioned in the say hi section of this letter. But let's get now into what we do know a lot more about. And that is that the primary addressees of Paul's letter, despite the the fact that there are Judeans belonging to the Jesus movement, clearly, and some of them are mentioned, despite the fact that we know that the Jesus movement likely emerged from among the Judean populations, despite all that, But it seems the primary addressees are the Greeks that belong to the group of Jesus followers. The people that Paul feels a need to address in terms of what they need to do, in terms of what they're doing wrong, are the Greeks among the followers of Jesus at Rome. So the main situation that we're going to unpack by working through the response is there are divisions and tensions along ethnic lines. Greeks versus Judeans is the primary issue. And it's Greeks feeling superior to Judeans. And Paul will sometimes use the language of being judgmental. Greeks judging Judeans is the language you'll encounter in Paul's own letter. An important recent book that you can look at if you're interested in exploring this further. Philip Essler has a very good book on Romans, specifically integrating ideas of ethnic-related issues in regard to anthropology and sociology and analyzing the situation at Rome. So Philip Essler is a good guy to look at if you're wanting to read further on Paul and his letter to the Romans. We're going to deal with an incident in chapters 14 and 15 of Romans, and that is the issue of food laws and a situation where Paul talks about the strong and Paul talks about the weak. He's actually saying to the strong not to judge the weak. And it turns out the weak are the ones who are refraining from eating meat at all so that they can make sure they don't encounter meat that would go against the food laws of the Torah. Greeks 
judging Judeans because the Judeans are following the Jewish Torah. What Paul says is stop judging the Judeans and just let them do what they do. Let them follow the food laws. Stop judging them. You Greeks need to stop feeling superior to Judeans. Different than Galatia. Potentially, a situation like this, though, if we relate it to the expulsions. Potentially a situation in which the followers of Jesus at Rome were initially primarily Judeans, back when it started. People who were attracted to Judean gods started to be attracted to the Judeans who also believed Jesus was the Messiah. Other Gentiles who maybe weren't at all God-fearers to begin with, somehow joining the worshippers of the Judean God who believed Jesus is the Messiah. So Judeans first, and then Greeks and Judeans together, believing Jesus is the Son sent by God. Then an incident involving expulsion of Judeans, including some, some that happened to be followers of Jesus, people like Priscilla and Aquila. Expulsion of Judeans from Rome. Leaving who? The Greeks who believe Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Who knows how long the Judeans are away? It's at least a decade, approximately, before they're beginning to return in full force. But even then, maybe some never return. If you get expelled from Rome, who who knows? Maybe you decide to settle somewhere else. But nonetheless, some of the Judeans starting to return to a situation where the groups of Jesus followers are entirely Gentile. So this is the way that scholars who link up the situation in Romans with the expulsion do it. The Greeks have had a decade of doing things their own way in following the Jew, Jesus as a Jewish Messiah and, and worshiping the Judean God. And their own way seems to have been not following the Jewish food laws. Now Judeans are returning and doing things their way that was always the way they did it. They believe Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. They're circumcised. They follow the food laws. Returning and having problems of integration within the followers of Jesus. And the problems of integration are precisely what we're seeing here in this theory. And that is, the problems of integration were Greeks judging and looking down upon the Judeans who follow the Jewish food laws. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music of this podcast is my own remix of Brian Eno and David Byrne's Help Me Somebody from My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, copyright 1981, None Such Records, with an Uzbek vocal sample by Savara Nazarkhan from her song Kunlarim, copyright 2007, Real World Music. Both are used with permission under Creative Commons type licenses.